Hello, listeners to Retelling the Bible. I have a very special treat for you today. I have a story to tell you as usual, but it's a very special story that has been inspired by the work of a new friend, Gil Kidron, a writer, editor, and podcaster from Tel Aviv, has been working through the Hebrew Bible on his podcast, which is called A Podcast of Biblical Proportions. He is now going through the book of Exodus, and he has some interesting theories about who wrote some portions of that book. That led to some other speculation on the second part of the book of Isaiah and the prophet Jeremiah. All of that inspired the story in this episode of the podcast. Even better, stick around after the episode for a discussion between me and Gil about the story, his theories, and biblical storytelling in general. To Shemaiah of Nehalem you shall say, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, In your own name you sent letters to all the people who are in Jerusalem, and to the priest Zephaniah, and to all the priests, saying, The Lord himself has made you priest instead of the priest Jehoiada, so that there may be officers in the house of the Lord to control any madman who plays the prophet, to put him in the stocks and the collar. So now, why have you not rebuked Jeremiah of Anathoth, who plays the prophet for you? For he has actually sent to us in Babylon, saying, It will be a long time. Build houses, and live in them, and plant gardens, and eat what they produce. That is a portion of an account of some very extraordinary correspondence that is described in the 29th chapter of the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah has been writing to exiles in Babylon from Jerusalem in the last few years before the final fall of Jerusalem to the kingdom of Babylon. He has also been responding to some letters sent back to Jerusalem by an exile named Shemaiah of Nehalam. But the unfortunate thing in the book of Jeremiah is that we only get one side of this letter-writing conversation. We are told what Jeremiah wrote and why, and Jeremiah has some extremely negative views of the people he is corresponding with, but we don't really get the other side of the conversation, except for how it is framed by Jeremiah. And, given Jeremiah's feelings on the matter, I'm not sure we can trust him to be unbiased. But it seemed that that was just how things were. Shemaiah's letters were lost, and there was no way to recover them. He could no longer speak for himself, and so he had to take Jeremiah's word for what he was preaching, off in Babylon. That is, up until now. My new friend and fellow podcaster, Gil Kidron, of A Podcast of Biblical Proportions, has a theory.
He thinks that Shemaiah's letters, or at least part of them, were not lost. They were saved, and eventually ended up being incorporated into what we know today as the book of Isaiah, specifically in chapters 40 to the middle of chapter 44. He is certainly correct that that part of Isaiah was written during the exile. Scholars have long recognized that. It is also certainly plausible that those chapters could fit with the historical context of the first wave of the exile, with the time of Shemaiah. I will leave it to Gill to defend his theory and offer his other evidence, but for my part, I just love a good bit of speculation, so I'm just going to go with it for this episode. What if we actually do have both sides of this conversation spread through the books of Jeremiah and this section of Isaiah? How might such an understanding make us read the story of the clash between Jeremiah and Shemaiah differently? This is Retelling the Bible. Wait, wait a minute. There are perhaps a few things about this particular story that we, as modern people, might be unfamiliar with. First of all, what is this whole thing about people communicating through correspondence? Well, you see, once upon a time, people used to do this thing called writing letters. It was sort of like when you text someone or when you post a message on Twitter, but you used to have to do it by writing it out by hand. And then you had to give it to people to deliver. I know, it sounds complicated, but that was how it worked. Except it was even more complicated for people in our story. Jeremiah and Shemaiah couldn't write. Very few people back then could. So they had to hire other people to write for them and to read out any responses. We know that Jeremiah often used a man named Baruch as his scribe. We don't know who did that job for Shemaiah, but my friend Gil likes to refer to Shemaiah's scribe as the Nehelamite. And oh, he's got a few theories about the Nehelamite. So, all of that is rather different from how communications work today. So, I will do my best to translate the story of the clash of these two prophetic titans into something that we can relate to. This, once again, is retelling the Bible. Special episode, Jeremiah's Twitter Beef.
Jeremiah had a way of dropping in at his friend Baruch's house at all hours. He would just show up in the middle of the afternoon, like today, and expect that Baruch would drop everything that he was doing and just attend to Jeremiah's latest thoughts or conspiracy theories. Hey Baruch, Jeremiah called out as he let himself into the man's living room. I was wondering if you could find out for me what was happening among the exiles in Babylon. Baruch rolled his eyes as he got up from his couch and walked over to the kitchen counter to pick up his phone. He had tried many times to explain to Jeremiah how various social media apps worked. Jeremiah had an insatiable curiosity about what was going on in the world. He believed that Yahweh spoke directly to him whenever he meditated on various current events. So, if he had only learned for himself how to use Twitter, he could have satisfied his need to be in the know all by himself. But Jeremiah was a confirmed technophobe. He always insisted that it was too complicated and that Baruch would have to do it for him. By this point, Baruch had gotten tired of arguing, and so he grabbed his phone and opened up Twitter. He did a search. The latest hashtag that had been trending for the exiles in Babylon was hashtag exile life. And so he searched for that. It didn't take him long to find something that he knew would get Jeremiah's gears turning. How about this one, he asked. It is by a guy named Shemaiah, who claims in his bio to be a prophet of Yahweh. This is what he has posted. Comfort, oh comfort my people, says your God. Baruch began to read as Jeremiah started to sip on a cup of wine. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem, and cry to her that she has served her term, that her penalty is paid, that she has received from Yahweh's hand double for all her sins. Jeremiah was so shocked at what he had heard that he sprayed the entire contents of the cup of wine all over Baruch's wall. <laughs> what? He cried. Is that false prophet saying what I think he's saying? He thinks that God has finished punishing Jerusalem for all of its sins? That the penalty has been paid in full? Ha! This Shemaiah fellow has no idea. <laughs> They've only been exiles in Babylon for, for what, three years or so? Jerusalem is still standing, and so God has only just begun to make Jerusalem pay. 
Quick, Baruch, I feel the word of Yahweh coming to me. You must write one of those uh, tweets that you're constantly trying to educate me about. Post this. Thus says Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat what they produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters... Hold on a sec, Baruch interrupted. That's 280 characters. I'm going to have to make this a thread. Uh, give me a second here and... Oh, okay. Keep going. Jeremiah impatiently waited and then, once Baruch had given him the sign, continued. <clears throat> Give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to Yahweh on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. There, Baruch, send that. That will put Shemaiah in his place. And so the Twitter battle between Jeremiah and Shemaiah began. And you can bet that as soon as Shemaiah heard from his talented scribe, the Nehelamite, the message Jeremiah had sent out, he was livid. Who does Jeremiah think he is? He raged. Why does he think that he in Jerusalem, knows better than me what Yahweh is saying to the people in Babylon. So he thinks that we should build houses and live in them. Ha! That's not what God is saying. God doesn't want us to build houses. God wants us to build a highway. Yes, a highway right through the desert that lies between Babylon and Jerusalem, so that we may go home. Here, tweet this thread, my dear Nehelamite. A voice cries out, In the wilderness, prepare the way of Yahweh. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. Then the glory of Yahweh shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of Yahweh has spoken. So went the battle as tweets flew across the vast distance between Jerusalem and Babylon. Jeremiah blasted out this rant. 
thus says Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel. Do not let the prophets and the diviners who are among you deceive you. And do not listen to your dreams that you dream. For it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, says Yahweh. And of course, Shemaiah was so outraged by the very suggestion that the word of Yahweh that he had spoken might be questioned, that his response was unequivocal. A voice says, cry out. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and their constancy is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. As in any Twitter beef, emotions were soon elevated to the extreme. In the end, each of the men attempted to cancel the other. Shemaiah had the Nehelamite send a DM to Zephaniah the priest in Jerusalem saying, Yahweh himself has made you priest instead of the priest Jehoiada so that there may be officers in the house of Yahweh to control any madman who plays the prophet, to put him in the stocks and the collar. So why have you not rebuked Jeremiah of Anathoth, who plays the prophet for you? But Jeremiah felt that he had a higher authority to appeal to, and so he ordered Baruch to send this to the exiles. Thus says Yahweh concerning Shemaiah of Nehalam. Because Shemaiah has prophesied to you, though I did not send him, and has led you to trust in a lie, therefore thus says Yahweh, I am going to punish Shemaiah of Nehalam and his descendants he shall not have anyone living among this people to see the good that I am going to do to my people, says Yahweh, for he has spoken rebellion against Yahweh. The first 39 chapters of the book of Isaiah are closely connected to the activities and preaching of the prophet Isaiah in the 8th century BCE. But after that, the book changes. The prophet Isaiah is no longer mentioned, and the prophecies are given anonymously. But they also speak to a very different historical context. The words are clearly addressed to people who are living in exile in Babylon, and they really would have meant nothing to the people who had lived in the time of Isaiah some two centuries earlier. That is why scholars now believe that the second part of Isaiah was written in Babylon during the exile, 
A lot of it was clearly written near the end of the exile, around the time when Cyrus the Persian conquered Babylon, which set the stage for the exiles to return home. But Gill has suggested that the first few chapters, 40 through the middle of 44, make more sense if we understand them as being set at the beginning, specifically in the period when a first wave of exiles had been taken away to Babylon, but before Jerusalem had finally fallen for good. I find this to be a very interesting and compelling idea, especially because we know about an extraordinary exchange that occurred at that time between the prophet Jeremiah in Jerusalem and the prophet Shemaiah in Babylon. Of course, uh, neither of these fellows thought the other guy was a true prophet, but that was how they saw themselves. So, what if, Gil asks, Shemaiah is the prophet who was actually behind the prophecies we find in Isaiah 40-44? to Interesting idea. I mean, what was the content of the letter that he sent to Jerusalem? and that Jeremiah so strongly objected to. Suddenly, it seemed to me that maybe, just maybe, we might have a handle on how the prophecies of Jeremiah and those of Second Isaiah did not simply stand alone, but were actually part of an ongoing conversation. I am thankful to Gill for an opportunity to reimagine the messages of both prophets. And now, here is the discussion between Gil and me. Hi, Scott. Hi, Gil. <laughs> Wonderful to finally meet you or sort of see you face to face, seven hours apart, but yes. Because we have uh, been uh, corresponding in the way that, uh, you know, us modern folk correspond. No longer writing by hand this ancient way sending it with a messenger to run all the way from jerusalem to babylon and back yes <laughs> i love this part of the story because it kind of made me relate more to their reality than to this reality where you could just tweet everything this is it's it's kind of crazy that this is possible yes so that was a good part of the, the story Yes, but it still made it clear that there was a bit of a conversation going on, even though it would have taken enormous amounts of time for that information to pass that distance. There seems to be a conversation going on, which is really interesting. Yeah, it's really interesting. And, and so first of all, I would like to, to ask you about uh, this contrast between Jeremiah and Shemaiah. Like basically what Jeremiah is saying is that Nebuchadnezzar will come in yep. and just like annihilate everything and everybody. Yes. This is it's, 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 it's very extreme. <laughs> Absolutely, yes. <laughs> and, and he goes to extreme uh, lengths also to kill his opponents. Yes. To burn them at the stake. This is... Uh, Shemaiah basically preaches the opposite. He says, no, Yahweh will bring uh, happiness and uh, victory and, uh, you know, a return. The same God, same religion, quote-unquote, completely contrasting ways of seeing the world. 
maybe uh, Jeremiah, I think, might be the first to come up with such a clear delineation of, of what a false prophet is. You know, so Jeremiah is the one who says, if you say it and it comes true, you are a true prophet. If you say it and it's not true, you are a false prophet. And I think that I see Jeremiah definitely, he is uh, opposing himself to his conversation partner because the disasters that Jeremiah has been talking about have largely happened. So he does feel vindicated. And when he runs into other prophets who are saying peace and prosperity and everything's going to be rosy, he just feels these these people are just, <laughs> they're just wishful thinking. Right. Yeah. He mentions in uh, in his book, the, he mentions the prophets that uh, prophesied that everything will be fine. Yeah. We don't have those prophecies because when everything was not fine, I guess people didn't feel that they had a lot of value. Mm-hmm. So we don't have them, but we have uh, the prophecies of Jeremiah because he was right on the big thing. Yes, uh, but it's kind of interesting because if if you're right and Shemaiah is represented in those first, you know, forty uh, chapter forty of Isaiah from on, I mean, Shemaiah then was kind of wrong. Uh, you know, he said, "Oh, though the punishment's over, we're going back. This is done." Well, of course, the exile dragged on and on. Now, eventually, he got vindicated you know some you know when eventually cyrus came along and it was time to go back um but for a lot for a long time yeah his prophecy seemed to be completely false and he wasn't there right yeah. to see so just like i yeah it must have been very very hard when nebuchadnezzar destroyed jerusalem yes. and everything that he believed in and hoped for and prophesied just like you know came crashing down that must, and we don't have uh, his text from from that period i don't know if he continued to you know to prophesize even like mm-hmm. wow that seems like something it, a very very tough experience it's easy to imagine he would, would have been a completely demoralized and and maybe wondered yeah maybe did maybe yahweh never did speak to me kind of thing yeah but yeah wow wow, wow. Hmm. So I wanted to ask you, so you are a minister. I am, yes, Presbyterian. And uh, in, in, in your podcast, you focus on, on storytelling, pretty yes. obviously. So how do you, you know, handle the two and how do you approach the retelling of the Bible? We have different perspectives, but we kind of do you know, the same thing, retelling the Bible. How do you approach that? You see, my job, my my regular week-by-week job is to interpret the Bible for the church and apply it to the church, uh, which I love. It's a wonderful privilege. But I started doing the podcast to do something different because I just wanted to take the Bible and, you know, these wonderful, rich stories and present them to the world, not necessarily to the church. So I tried to step away from, you know, direct applications to the church and say, this is, this is a wonderful story and let's tell the story kind of thing. And so what I like to do and I try to do is I especially like to take a different um, approach to the story, tell it from a different angle, maybe tell it from the point of view of a minor character or a character that has often been, you know, forgotten or misrepresented. Uh, so I try to tell the other side of the story. I, But it's also sort of 
you know, I've heard these stories so often, and it's just a matter of uh, trying to live it out, you know, practically, what did this story look like? For this to happen uh, in, the, in the way that, that I'm telling it, uh, you have to say, well, how did this person get over there? How did this resource that they used in the story happen to be there? All of those little details. You have to edit the story. I do. And, and, and it sends you down all kinds of rabbit holes and makes you ask all kinds of questions. Like if I can give an example, a story I'm working on right now, the story, well, the famous story where Abraham is sitting outside of his tent and three, uh, three uh, visitors come along, three strangers come along. Well, one of the first things he does after he invites them in for a little morsel of bread, he runs to the tent and he yells out to his wife, uh, take three measures of flour and make cakes. Well, I went and researched that. And, and like the measure that he says is like three sias of flour, which is a whole lot of flour. I went and I, I oh. did the conversions and I calculated <laughs> and it's, it's um, uh, 25 kilograms of flour. He says for oh her to take. I said, hold on, there's something going on here. She can't even carry that. Yes, and, and how long does it take to bake 25, oh you goodness. know? So those kinds of practical questions, oh I, you know, I just love to... Maybe the man who wrote it, he, just, he said, okay, whatever, Well, well maybe, but then he also goes and he, he kills an entire calf, roasts it up. So, I mean, this is, this, it's an unbelievable meal that he prepares, right? And, and oh. meanwhile, you got three people sitting outside the tent uh, waiting while Sarah bakes that many cakes and we kill and roast an entire calf. I mean, who waits that long for a meal? You know, so those kinds of practical questions, and obviously there's something going on there quite intentionally, but those are the questions that I love to ask. So it's, um, you know, I like to know what, say, for example, the scholars have said about when it was written and maybe what the context was, but it's... Uh, which is what I really appreciate, you know, your approach. You really dig into what the historical context of the story is. Sometimes I'll let that kind of thing inform me, but but sometimes it's enough just to really just imagine the story and the way it was. And yeah. it gives you a whole different perspective. And, um, you know, even the fantastic elements, you know, the, the unbelievable, miraculous elements, sometimes when you tell the story, you know, you can sort of imagine how something might have happened that people interpreted as a miracle. And I like to take that perspective sometimes too, so. Actually, I think that uh, I can really identify with, uh, with your approach. And I go into the scholarship uh, angle only after I got a sense of the story, reading it over and over and over and over in isolate. Mm. And just like forgetting everything that I know about it. And everything that I've been told that it is, because it's very uh, limiting. If you if you first go to what everybody says about the story, no, you just like read it, mm -hmm. just let it marinate for a while, and then it could just like, come to you like, hey, how come they killed all these babies, but nobody else mentions the dead babies? Yeah, that's weird. And then I go to, uh, to see what scholars say, and then they say the, the guy that wrote this, they call him the e-source, he's like an isolate, and the things that he writes about are not mentioned in the J, P, and uh, yeah. D. They're separate right. stories that never got integrated, yeah. Yes. yeah. And 
but that's just like a like a weird academic uh, uh, kind of thinking that just like obscures the fact that hey this appears at the beginning if this is not if the babies dead babies are not mentioned later then we have to look at how this story was constructed this must not have been something that the other people agreed on upon because then they would talk about their babies because they remember the plagues they remember and the hardship they remember exactly so only later come back into scholarship in order to see you know that i'm not way off somewhere you know beyond the the lines and bounds of reason mm-hmm. but first thing is it's just the story what is the story like a story is not nonsense people write a story there's intent behind every story what is the intent what are they trying to say what is their perspective i'm not sure that uh, scholars are you know better suited for that than the, you and i to understand a story yeah if you look at it just as a story then we all have skills to understand stories yes Yeah, yeah. Oh, I mean, and, and uh, somebody once said that you know, one of the things that distinguished human beings from any other animal is that we are storytelling animals. We make sense of the world by telling stories. And this is, <laughs> this is what they were doing, and this is what we continue to do. And, and of course, by retelling these stories, we do make them relevant, uh, I often find, to what's actually going on in the world today. Yes, ex- exactly, exactly. This is, this is my point. I think that most of the stories in Exodus, for example, the writers are retelling existing stories to make them relevant for what's going on in the world for them, the Babylonian exile. They didn't invent out of whole cloth uh, the story of uh, Hebrews leaving uh, Egypt into freedom through the desert and getting their laws uh, from a mountain and crossing uh, a sea while the Pharaoh's chariots are drowning. They didn't invent that. They retold that story in order to make it relevant for their audience sitting in the Babylonian exile. So this is why so, mu- so much of the, of the stories that we have in Exodus always are so relevant for the people in the Babylonian exile. Mm-hmm. And when you think about it, Maybe if you're lucky, you can be like another link in the chain of, of, of retelling, uh, retelling these stories. Uh, do you want to talk about uh, the midwife story, the baby Moses story, or do you want to go to the beef between Jeremiah and Shemaiah? Well, uh, maybe let's go to the beef <laughs> for now. And if we want to yeah, come no. back to the other stories, we can. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. No. Let's go to the beef. Yeah. How do you see this beef, uh, you know, beyond the, the story that we just uh, heard in your episode? Well, uh, you sort of just gave me the opportunity to sort of see this uh, story from a bit of a different point of view. See, when I went through seminary, when I was taught the book of Isaiah, I was taught, okay, the first 39 chapters, that's, you know, all around the original prophet Isaiah. The second bit up until, what is it, 55 is second Isaiah. And I was always taught, okay, that's all late exile, you know, when Cyrus is coming and it's time to go home. Uh, so just, you know, the episode you had done gave me permission to say, okay, let's look at those first few chapters. And before Cyrus comes into the story, before he gets mentioned, and, 
when you look at it closely, it, yeah, it makes sense that it, it sort of seems to be set in that early exile period, the first wave of exile, because it seems like Jerusalem still exists. Uh, that, yes. that was the thing that really struck me when I looked at it again. Yeah, Jerusalem still seems to be there. The idea of a return is not, okay, we're returning to a deserted country. We are returning to no, something no. that already exists. So so I said, okay, yeah, so yeah, maybe Gil's got a point. So that, so maybe that is, and then... I guess so another, another, another point of evidence, uh, sorry just for that, he's clearly talking to over and over and over and over the kinds of people that we know were in the first wave of exile. The Harash yeah. al-Ramasgir, the artisan, the craftsman, the goldsmith, the blacksmith, whatever you want to call that them. class, yeah. He's just a co- constantly, just like you have like 10, 15 mentions of those specific yes. kinds of, uh, of, of people that were with him. Yes. And, and the other thing is he speaks of Jerusalem. It seems like it still exists. Send to Jerusalem, yes. you know, speak to Jerusalem. So, yeah, yeah so there's that. Um, yeah, so I said, okay, so yeah, so that's early exile. And then, you know, in your episode, you went through, well, who, who do we know that was in exile that could have been saying this kind of thing? And you ended up from Jeremiah's letter with Shemaiah. He's the only one who sort of seems to have been pretty active over there. We know he was there. We know that he was sending letters because Jeremiah tells us back to Jerusalem. And we know that he preached, uh, preached a return. Yes. Yes. So, uh, like this, Shemaiah yes. and Second Isaiah are aligned yeah. in that. So it's a very similar. So, so why not go with it? Okay. So this is Shemaiah. So, yeah. And then <laughs> once I did that, I said, okay, you, you lie up. Okay, he says, you know, the opening message in Isaiah forty is is comfort, comfort. The the punishment's over. Time to go back. Okay, that makes <laughs> sense. Uh, whereas Jeremiah, we have him saying, well. Uh, no, don't go. You're not coming back. You're going to build houses. You're wow. going to live in That's them. That's very harsh. Yes. I think that one thing that, you, that, you, that your episode did very well and that I don't think I emphasized them, uh, how intense this must have been. He's telling them, stay, you're going to stay in exile your whole life, your sons, your grandsons. Yeah. Wow, this is, they must have been It's got to be devastated. Appalled. Yeah. yeah. Devastated, yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, and say, you know, if Jeremiah is sending a message, build houses, well, what's the next thing that we see in Isaiah? We see, no, we're not building houses, we're building a highway. <laughs> you know, a voice, and I, you know, I see this Jeremiah, uh, Shemaiah speaking to himself, right? I am the voice crying out, and the voice is crying out, no, we're not building houses, we're building a highway, we're going home, you know, and this incredible passage that has lived on ever since of every valley shall be lifted up every mountain and hill be made low this is imagery of a construction of a highway uh so you know you can sort of see once you open up the possibility you can see it as a bit of a conversation and obviously yeah given the distance letters would have taken months and months to pass so it's not like an immediate conversation but sort of reimagining it as what we would have today, an immediate conversation over Twitter. Well, yeah. that kind of made it made it more more active and and more more clear. So yeah. it was it made it more fun. Yeah, yeah. You don't have to wait uh, three months to get uh, annoyed at the other person. <laughs> right. Yes. If, as we say, those first few chapters after Isaiah forty are written, you know, first wave of exile. 
with this incredible promise, okay, this is all over, we're going home. And then, of course, it doesn't happen. And the exile gets worse and more people go away and Jerusalem is destroyed. Uh, you can well imagine that that text would have been put aside and said, well, this guy didn't know yeah. what he was talking about, right? Yeah, but yeah. then uh, when finally, years later, decades later, Cyrus comes along right, and all of a sudden a return seems possible, I can well imagine somebody finding that original text Boom. and saying, oh, all of a sudden this is now relevant. So we start a new book right. with those few chapters and then we start talking about Cyrus and how God is using Cyrus. And I also can see, looking forward, you know, some of the themes that um, Shemaiah would have introduced in his chapters, like the suffering servant is a big one, and this new thing that God is doing, those ideas then get remixed into the rest of that middle part of Isaiah as well. And there's, you know, it goes on and on about a suffering servant that gets rethought and reimagined as well. So all of that... Uh, so I can see nice. somebody taking that, reusing it for the new situation that now we are going home. So now all of a sudden, what Shemaiah said that didn't seem relevant uh, for a long time, now is relevant. And we can right. and we can remix it and work with it and tell a new story. And that happens all, all the time. Thinkers say something that is relevant, then yeah. situation changes, it's not relevant. Then the situation changes again. They reemerge a few hundred years later, and now people remember, hey, this guy got it right. It happens all the time. It's not some, some weird uh, coincidence. Mm -hmm. uh, I, uh, I always uh, am of two minds. Should I list all the evidence, and then there's the danger of uh, information uh, overload? Yeah. Or if I skip over some of them, but then there's a risk that people don't like fully appreciate all the connections and then uh, maybe it's not as impactful. So in the, in, in the previous episode, I mentioned all the Easter eggs, but I only specifically mentioned one, the yeah. Pua. If a as a woman in childbirth, uh, I cry out. That is just such a weird uh, combination that the moment that I saw it, I was like, oh, my goodness, this looks like a reference to that. To the name of the, of the midwife in the, in the, the uh, Sorry, yes. the name yeah. of the midwife, uh, Pua. Yeah. My, my next thought was, if this is indeed an Easter egg, I should find in these verses, in this chapter, more. All of mm -hmm. the, like, I should find more Easter eggs to the other uh, stories written by the same person that the scholars call the Esource, at least for the Esource for the first half of Exodus. You know, I haven't yet, yet uh, dived into mm -hmm. the, the last part. But the first half of Exodus, the isolate uh, stories, we have a list of them. That's the, the baby genocide story, baby Moses story. God reveals his name to Moses. That's the burning bush then mm -hmm. departure from Egypt, then the song of the sea. And then th and there's also a song about uh, Yitro, Jethro, uh, talking with Moses about trials and judgments and ruling. He gives him some advice. So that's six stories. All of them are referenced in this one chapter, Isaiah 42. I, wow. I can't see how that is a coincidence. Yahweh is my mm -hmm. name. This is for me a reference to the burning bush when he's telling him his mm -hmm. name 
and also he's throwing shade uh, at Jeremiah in this chapter. <laughs> in their beef, oh, I just found it the other mm-hmm. day. He's, he's uh, uh, lambasting the, the leadership in uh, Jerusalem. This is verse 22. They are hiding in prisons when, they, when their people are being uh, bozes, uh, pillaged. Mm. Who was found in a prison when Jerusalem was uh, pillaged? Jeremiah. Jeremiah. Yes. Was yes. hiding in the prison. When so Jerusalem yeah. Was so that man might make sense. Yeah, maybe sh- throwing some shade on, Jer- on Jeremiah then. Yeah. <laughs> hmm. It's kind of amazing to think that that you may have discovered a connection. I mean, I know there's maybe no yeah. absolute proof, and maybe scholars will never buy your your argument. But I just the, the chance of just looking at the whole thing from a different point of view just makes that's the fun of of dealing with an incredible book like the bible right that that there's depth and there's connections that we can always keep on finding you know oh my goodness so yes. much every time i get to the next story i'm thinking okay let's see this is, i hope this one is simple <laughs> and <laughs> and direct <laughs> and that there are yeah. not too many layers so this one will be will be easy to and I don't know, as of now, it's not easy. <laughs> yeah. Just like everything, no. well, it just takes so long. Yeah. I mean, it's such a complex book. And the way it was all put together was so complex that we're never going to get to the bottom of what happened, right? In terms of this, the creation of this incredible piece of literature. Absolutely. But I'm going to try. Yeah. <laughs> going to do your best. You're doing some pretty amazing things. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, and I and I wanted. To, I don't think I had a chance to say, but uh, I I followed your argument in terms of you know Baruch being uh, behind you know some of those key episodes in in Genesis, especially around Joseph, and that, what a fascinating point of view on uh, on Genesis, and it kind of makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Thank you. When you talked about the baby in the basket and your personal connection to that, well, that's oh. you know that's that's something that brings a tear to people's eyes. Absolutely, yes. Okay, <sighs> uh, okay so thank you very much, uh, Scott. Yes. Well, I I really appreciate that, and yeah, maybe we can do this again. Uh, yes, definitely. In, <laughs> when we get a little bit, when you get a little bit further, yes. I'll be happy to. That is it for this special episode of Retelling the Bible. The theme music for the podcast is Ada by Kevin McLeod, and the mood and the mood music for this episode is Things by Alexander Nakarada. The music is licensed under the Creative Commons and can be found at filmmusic.io. Sound effects were found on zapsplat.com. This is Retelling the Bible. And I have been your storyteller, W. Scott McCandless. <laughs>